As a child, I heard certain Bible stories over and over again. Every year in vacation Bible school and Sunday school and church camp, the same stories made the rounds. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree. Joshua in the battle of Jericho. Jonah and the whale. Every year we sang songs about them, drew pictures of them, made crafts about them, and watched VeggieTale videos that replaced their heroes with tomatoes and cucumbers. And then we grow up and we never hear about some of these stories again. Seriously, I can count on one hand the number of sermons I've heard preached on Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a figure who faithfully showed up in every Christian education program of my childhood. His simple desire to hear Jesus leads to an ingenious moment where he does the first century equivalent of bluffing his way past security. But as my adult life went on and Zacchaeus failed to reappear as a central religious figure, I slowly realized the children's Bible isn't just a family-friendly selection from the real Bible. It's a whole different book with a different cast of characters and a different set of messages. Years ago, I had a friend who taught Jewish studies at another university. She would turn purple every time she saw nursery decorations, toys, or children's books with a Noah's Ark theme. The smiling two-by-two animals made her apoplectic with rage. What set her off was the transformation of a deep, mysterious, important, multifaceted part of her heritage into a nursery rhyme. When we relegate certain parts of the Bible to bedtime stories and fairy tales, we tame its strangeness, sanitize its irritating frictions, and worst of all, when we become adults, we forget all about them. They become the childish things we set aside. Jonah is one of those childish things. According to James Kugel, the Orthodox Jewish scholar and author of How to Read the Bible, the story about the whale, or the big fish more accurately, is really no more than a brief prologue to the main part of the book of Jonah. The part where Jonah calls upon the people of Nineveh to repent of their sins, and to his eternal consternation, they do. This part of the book was popular with ancient Jews, who saw in it an important message about the power of true repentance to turn aside God's wrath. The Mishnah reports that on a public fast day, the people of God were to gather in sackcloth and ashes and hear this word spoken to them. Brethren, it is not said about the people of Nineveh that God saw their sackcloth and their fasting but that God saw their actions, how they had turned aside from their evil way. But ancient Christians emphasized the prologue instead, because the three days Jonah spent in the fish's belly were seen as a foreshadowing of Jesus' three days in the tomb. Early Christian art abounded with depictions of Jonah being swallowed, fully clothed, and then vomited out naked completely restored and resurrected, reborn. Today, however, 
the typological interpretation of the Hebrew Bible is no longer in vogue, and the simple lesson of Jonah's sojourn in the whale, as the old saying puts it, your arms too short to box with God, is deemed perfect for children's moral education. At the same time, Jonah's petulance about not getting to see the city burned up in divine fire and brimstone seems childish to us. So that part of the story is caught in another world, neither a part of scripture that rewards deep study nor an edifying tale for the youngsters. In that sense, it pairs well with the parable of the laborer's wages from Matthew. Nobody really comes off well in this story. The workers who complain about getting the same wages for a full day's work as their late-coming colleagues did for just a couple of hours, they seem justified in their concern, sure, but we feel like it's bad form for them to speak up. They should have just grumbled about it in the break room. And the generous employer who pays those wages seems like a little bit of a sucker on the one hand and partially responsible for the disquiet among his valued workers on the other. If they decided to sleep in the next day and saunter into the vineyard at 5 p.m. for some light weeding and a big paycheck, who could blame them? I think we find this parable difficult because we worry in our capitalist culture about giving people any incentive to slack off. We feel certain people will take advantage of any opportunity they get to avoid the hardest work, the heat of the day, the lifelong commitment. We think people won't put in the time if they can get away with doing anything less. But of course that's why this parable is such good news for us, just as it was to the people of Matthew's community. They were born too late to put in the time the way the apostles did, and the missionaries did, and the people who did the hard work of spreading the faith did, and the patriarchs and the heroes of the Hebrew Bible did. Their only hope was a God more merciful than just, more generous than fair, a God willing to welcome to the feast even us Johnny-come-latelys. We like to think of justice as a grown-up topic, something to be finely parsed by philosophers and debated by pundits. But anybody who's watched kids for any length of time knows differently. There's nothing more childish than fairness. Think of a playground where there is a rigid and well-understood system of pushing others on the tire swing after you get your turn to ride and the consternation engendered by the kid who gets to ride for free because the bell rang before he had to take a turn pushing. Think of the child who's done all the work but knows that A, her classmate didn't, and B, her classmate is about to be exposed to the teacher for it. Do you remember the eagerness with which you waited for them to get their comeuppance? And how righteously angry you felt when they got the second chance that you didn't need? Children are natural jurists, parsing out just desserts with absolute certainty. Yet they see no conflict between their demands for fairness when they are in the right, and their pleas to escape consequences when they are in the wrong. In other words, it's not the giant fish that makes Jonah into a story perfectly suited for children. 
It's the desire to see Nineveh blow up real good. In the same way, maybe our fretting about what other people will or will not do if they aren't properly incentivized is the childish thing we should put away. We all picture ourselves as that one lost lamb out of the 100 that the good shepherd will search high and low for. But more often, we're number 46 back in the pen, complaining to number 47 that only the strays ever get the shepherd's undivided attention. To rejoice in the salvation of another, no matter how belated, now that's a lesson it might take any grown-up a lifetime to appreciate. Amen.